Hey, one more thing before you go. What do you do when your father dies from brain cancer when you're 12 years old? Your mother kicks you out and says, get the heck out of her life. And then at 26 years old, she dies. Foster care, pregnancy, domestic violence, on the edge of suicide. It's a life journey to survive and to be strong enough to create new relationships and dedicate your life to helping people move forward in their lives going through the same thing that you went through. Stay tuned. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is That Thing About Rock Bottom to Entrepreneur. My guest in this episode is Cheney Fletcher. She's a Human Services Board Certified Practitioner, a homeschooling mama of seven children, living her dreams out every day. She has a passion for serving others. She loves inappropriate music, challenging boundaries, and being a mother. If someone told her she couldn't do something, she found a way to do it anyway. Cheney sees challenges as learning experiences for personal growth and uses her experiences that develop resiliency to inspire you to develop yours through her experiences, her intuition, her compassion, and her empathy. Her mantra is thriving is so much more than just living life. Empathy and compassion opens doors to fostering resilience that leads you back to chasing your desires and happiness relentlessly. Limiting beliefs are at your core, and I help you eliminate them. Welcome to the show, Cheney. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. You have an amazing journey in your 28 years. You're on this. Earth. I have. You know, it's it is. I as we spoke earlier, right before this started, you know, I commend you because you of what you have been through and where you've come, and the fact that you've come out on top, and not everybody gets to come out on top. Um, yeah. So let's talk about let's talk about that journey. Where where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Indiana in a suburb of Indianapolis, and my life started out really normal. I mean, two parents that were married, I was the oldest, but things changed by the time I was about five. Um, my parents ended up getting a divorce, and from there, it kind of just, it was the domino that caused everything. Well, you, I know that you... Um before you know when I first met you when you first reached out and, and we opened to this conversation um we have a lot in common we both had dysfunctional families i think your parents had had alcohol problems yeah so at 12 my dad died of glioblastoma which is a brain tumor essentially and so that triggered my mom into drinking more than she had in the past she previously drank socially or she'd drink at home and hide it. But oh, when she lost him for the second time after the divorce and he was gone and she was left with, you know, two daughters to raise on her own, she, she went off the deep end and it got so bad that, I mean, all of our money would go to her alcohol and she just couldn't deal with the pain mentally. She, she just checked out. Yeah. I, I mean, I've seen that situation before. I think my mother kind of did the same thing. She, they had always been, both my parents had always been uh, partiers. We'll call them. I mean, it, it was to me looking from the child's perspective, I was the middle child and I have an older sister and younger brother. And, you know, we watched what they had done. We'd seen what they'd done, but we thought that was just normal behavior, which obviously as we grow older, we find out that that's not normal behavior. Um, your yeah. your mother, um, I know that you guys had some some troubles and some issues uh, with that in regard, and you had something significant at, at about sixteen years old that happened, correct? Yes. So at sixteen, and it was right after my sixteenth birthday, I had already been placed as a chins, which is a child in need of services through foster care. They said that they were going to keep me in the house with her and try and work on our relationship together to see if they could give resources or anything else that they could to try and make sure that she could be the parent that I needed. 
And within a week of being a Chins, she got drunk, got behind the wheel of a car, told me to get in the back seat, and drove me across the small town at the time. It's not so small now. And dropped me off in front of the county jail where there are cameras on the outside as a secure facility and opened the door for me and told me to get the fuck out of her car and the fuck out of her life. That's um, an interesting way to kind of uh, um, break out the relationship with your daughter. It's uh, I'm, I'm sure it was devastating for you. In regard to that, what what were your thoughts? What do you what did you do? It wasn't the first time that she had tried to get rid of me. She had tried to call adoption agencies when I mean I was thirteen and fourteen in front of me. She would sit there and give me pamphlets to boarding schools at fourteen and fifteen, telling me she'd ship me off and want nothing to do with me. So I knew it was a matter of time before something happened, but in all honesty, I really didn't think she'd go over that cliff and actually do it. And so that day was a deciding factor for me in my life. And it, it did change my entire life. Now, do you, do you have any sisters or brothers with just you? I have one biological younger sister. And oddly enough, that night, um, I called my best friend's mother, and she called the police. The police called DCS, and DCS decided my sister would stay with my mom. And DCS After is all the Department of Child Safety. Yes. And I was removed at that point. And I remember the caseworker. She had came from a volleyball match that evening, actually, and she was just an emergency worker because it was after hours. And we went back to the DCS office and she started going through the list of numbers to try and find me a placement. And being 16, she's like, I don't know if I'm going to find you a placement tonight. And it was getting really late. And she called one family and they answered. And the lady's like, well, I'm really not looking to take in a teenager. Call everyone else first. And if nobody else will take her, then call me back. So she went through the list. Nobody else answered. And I ended up with that family. And I, <clears throat> I'm not a person who goes to church every Sunday, but I will say that I do believe in a God. And it was that night that really kind of solidified my belief because I sat there on the floor Indian style, just God, please let me find somewhere to go to be safe. Please let them be nice people that will support me and help me through this because I'm terrified. And she called them back and I was taken there that night and we got there close to midnight that night. And that that really changed my life at that point. Um, what did they do with your sister? She stayed with my mom. Wow, that's amazing that they let one child stay and, and, and took one child. She became a Chins. And I think it was within six months, she ended up with a family member. And in all honesty, I've always wondered, well, why didn't my family take me? Because I took her, but they didn't want me. And so I really struggled with that for a really long time. And I realized I wasn't meant to go to my family for a reason. Because the family that I got placed with that night, I was just over there yesterday. And I left 10 years ago. They are my parents. I call them mom and dad. My kids know them as their grandparents. We do Christmas together. Yesterday was a Sunday family dinner. And I was meant to have that in my life. That's amazing. And it, it took me 12 years and 
I mean, the past year in intense therapy to be able to understand that I'm worthy of belonging, that I deserve to be loved, and that I actually had somewhere I belonged. Because for the longest time, I thought, nobody's going to love me. My own mom couldn't love me. How am I supposed to love myself? And then being a teenager and going through all of this, I mean, I lost my dad at 12 and I would sit there and say, why does God hate me so much? Why did he take the one person who kept me safe? And I realized that it wasn't necessarily God who did all of the bad things in my life. He's the one who stood next to me the entire time and helped me have the strength to get through it. I could have very easily ended up being an alcoholic like my mom. I could have easily ended up in jail for doing something really stupid. And somehow I stayed on a path where. Yeah, I've made mistakes. I've learned a lot of life lessons the hard way. But I've also made different choices that led me to where I'm happy with my life. And I never thought that that would be a possibility for me to reach. Well, I I find it very unique uh, for a foster family and the foster kid to carry on a relationship 10 years later. That's really a valuable asset. It shows that you don't have to be blood to be family. I actually don't talk to much of my biological family at all. Still to this day. Um, And it's not because I'm upset with them or anything, but I found out when I was in foster care that my biological mom was sitting there and telling them that it was my fault. I was this horrible kid um, I was doing all of this bad things that I I had nothing to do with. And so it it changed their perception of who I was as a person. And I live states away. So it's not like I can sit here and just pop in and say, hey, how are you doing? So I just stayed on the course of my own life instead and just decided that if they wanted to be a part of my family, My arms are open towards them. I have no hard feelings. I still love them. I reach out occasionally, but I still have that hard time reaching out to anyone because I, I had to learn to be so self efficient and rely on only me that it's hard for me to reach out and say, well, hi, how are you doing? Now, if somebody comes to me and they're like, well, how are you? I'll sit there and be like, oh, man, I'm so glad to see you. I'm great. How are you doing? But for me to initiate that, I was always told growing up. I mean, I was conditioned in all honesty that I was worthless. I shouldn't talk. I had nothing good to say. Um, I was the problem child. Everything was my fault. Everything was my responsibility. And you just, once you're conditioned to believe anything like that, you withdraw. And I think that's just natural in a way. I, well, I agree with you in that regard. And luckily, you had a foster family that they, were you at the same one for two? You, you aged out at 18 because in the yes. foster system, you reach the age of 18 in most states. You were then an adult and you're on your own, pretty much, correct? That's how it's supposed to work. Um, but it's not that simple, actually. When I was 18 and getting ready to age out of foster care, I was actually pregnant by a date rape situation. And I had just graduated high school. Um, I had actually done a full year and six weeks in summer school to graduate a year early so that when I graduated, I'd be 18 instead of 19. And they, they talked a lot about keeping me in the system until I was 21. And I was not okay with that. 
And my birthday was May 22nd and I turned 18. And then I had to wait until I think it was the middle of June for the court date to close my case. Even though I turned 18, I was still a ward of the state. So I did not have any freedom until that court date released me. It's not like when you live with your biological family and you Mm -hmm. turn 18 and you're on your own. Well, it's, it is, I, it, it, what state was this in? I'm sorry. Can you? Indiana. Refer? Indiana. So maybe Indiana. See, in Colorado, where I was a cop, um, 18 was 18. You, they aged out at 18, no matter what. Yeah, this was a unique situation, obviously, you said from date rape and your pregnancy. Mm-hmm. I know that you married your high school sweetheart um, mm-hmm. eventually, and I'm assuming not the same individual. No, um, he was, my high school sweetheart and I met when I was 15. We went to the same high school when I lived with my biological mom. When I went into foster care, he stayed by my side and he was my rock, but we had split up for a brief time. And, you know, going through what I had been through, I thought that, oh, I know everything. I don't need anyone to take care of me. Got into a really bad situation and then, you know, didn't last because I, when you find yourself in a car with someone who grabs you by the throat and tries to force you to do anything, you realize that that's not a relationship you want to be a part of. And so after all of that happened, I stopped all contact with him but I did reconnect with my high school sweetheart and he ended up accepting my child as his for the longest time. And he did help me raise him. I can't necessarily say everything between he and I was terrible, but it wasn't great either. (laughs) Well, I know you ended up, obviously eventually you ended up in a domestic violence shelter with, with kids um, with your kids, with your children. Uh, and I know we talked a little bit about your family, your uh, biological family. Uh, was there a domestic violence situation within that biological family as you grew up before you went into foster care? My mom and my dad, no. Now, who my mom dated after my dad, I did see glimpses of it. And I really saw it more once I had actually aged out of the system and contacted my mom, she was in a really bad relationship then. So it's kind of, I guess, unique for me because in the beginning, I remember a really healthy relationship between my mom and my dad. But then when he passed away, I had all the conditioning from this alcoholic mother figure. And that's actually been something that I've tried to understand even going through therapy is why didn't what I saw at such a younger age stick like it's supposed to more than what I was seeing as a teenager. You know, I I can understand that from a perspective, as I said to you before, and, and some of my listeners understand, I grew up with alcoholic parents. You grew up with a certain mentality within that them where it normalizes your environment and you feel that that's completely normal. It takes a lot of uh, introspect and, and, and looking in from the outside as well in regard to helping us to understand that that is not a normal situation. And sometimes we, and I'm sure you probably felt the same thing, and, and there are p- people that are listening to this that are in the same position. You feel guilty sometimes. You feel angry sometimes. You feel, I mean, it's, there's a whole range of emotion that you go through why didn't I do this? Why didn't I change this? Why am I still doing something that um, I know better because I grew up in that environment? It, it's a question we always ask ourselves. And I think, unfortunately, it is in, it is a situation where we were subject to that for so long, the normalization of it allow, puts a block up and that we have to yeah. break that block down a little bit, that wall down, to understand that, hey, we didn't belong in that 
environment and an environment that's not normal and that the habits and the the situations that we continue to put ourselves in um, can be changed, which you talk about here in a little bit. You made positive changes in your life to move yeah. forward from a lot of that. But, you know, I, I'm going into my, without divulging my age completely, <laughs> I'm still <laughs> a vain man. <laughs> uh, I'm going into my seventh generation here. So it is, it is, it takes, and there are still things that I, that I have to stop myself and kind of go, wait a minute, and look back on it, in spite yeah. of being a career in law enforcement and working domestic violence. You know, not that my environment, it, just for the record, my home environment, we're, we don't have any domestic violence here. That's one thing that I will not tolerate with, you know, my kids, um, with my daughter's husband, anything, will not tolerate that one, one bit. Um, that That is... You know, you have this point that you get to, and that is one of mine. So, you know, um, I had to stop. A, my youngest was dating somebody that started to show tendencies of domestic violence, and I immediately shut that relationship down and and kind of said, let's talk about this, and let me show you why to my daughter. Let's talk about why and yeah. what he was doing and why he was doing it. And then she started going, oh, yeah, I see that. Now, now I see that kind of a situation and it helps to educate. So it takes us all, everybody, that we, all of us that have been in that situation, it takes a little bit to kind of really evaluate our circumstances and how we want to move forward. And you did it really well because here you are, um, you, you, you are remarried. I know that you had, you had married your, mm -hmm. your uh, high school sweetheart. I think you married him twice and divorced twice. Twice, yeah. Um, and you ended up in the, the domestic violence uh, facility. I mean, not a, a safe house. Mm -hmm. Correct. I ended up there actually four days after my 24th birthday. And it was difficult. I stayed a full 30 days there. I had nothing to my name. My ex-husband had put every vehicle in his name. Um, and he told me if I had taken one, he would call it in as stolen. He was very controlling and I really didn't see it. I didn't have anyone to sit there and explain why he was doing what he was doing or what he was trying to accomplish with it. It just felt safe to me because in retrospect, it was what I went through with my mother that I, I knew so well. And so it was that false sense of safety that made me stay as long as I did. And things just kept getting worse. And it, it really was like the cycle. Everything was great. And then he'd do something and I'd start having doubts. Then it would get a little worse. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to leave. And then he starts apologizing and making up for it and promising it's not going to happen again then you hit this really great spot and it'll just start over again. And I got sick of it during one cycle, reached out to a domestic violence hotline, connected with a local resource. I went in on the 25th and did a questionnaire and I was in disbelief that, you know, being trained and educated in what domestic violence was, I couldn't see that I had put myself in that situation, but I really didn't want to think that I was in that kind of situation. And unfortunately, I think that that those that are that find themselves in that situation don't. Again, it's a it's a it's an observation type thing. It's a feeling as well. You and when I say observation, not necessarily from the outside. It's got to be from the inside as well. I think COVID. You had mentioned that COVID, because of the COVID situation, you kind of had that opportunity to slow down for a minute and take a good look at your situation and, and where it was at that point. And I, I think that it kind of, as you said, it kind of saved your life, right? Yeah. So when COVID hit, I had been remarried for a year at that point to my husband now. And 
I had been in survival mode and I never really had noticed that it was survival mode. But all I could think about is how am I going to get through today? There was no thought of tomorrow. There's no thought of the upcoming week or a future at all. It was just how am I going to get through today? And I ended up pregnant unexpectedly in June of 2020. And at that point in time, I started dealing with prenatal depression and prenatal anxiety, which I never even knew was a thing until it happened to me because there's nothing that really talks about how you can get prenatal depression and anxiety, not just postpartum. I've never, I, yeah, that's the first time I've, I've, first time I've heard that actually. Yeah, I didn't know it was a thing either. And it hit, it hit so hard that one night I live pretty rurally. So the back roads where I am flood if it rains at all. And it had rained and the river level was at flood level. So that meant the back roads were going to be to the point where they were not going to be drivable. And I had gotten triggered by something that my husband had said, and it reminded me of my ex-husband. And so it threw me into this panic mode with anxiety of, oh my goodness, did I do something wrong? What does the future look like? And I was doubting myself and beating myself up. Am I just repeating something again? And then the anxiety fed into this depression and the depression was to the point of, I don't know if I can go through this again. I don't have the strength. I'm exhausted. I don't want to fight anymore. I just want to give up. And so I told my husband that, listen, I'm going to leave. I'm going to take a drive. I've got to calm down. And I went the back roads, forgetting that had rained and came across one that floods so horribly. If you go in it, your car is going to be submerged. And I sat there and I just looked at this road that was completely flooded and I knew I had a choice and the choice was I could end it by driving my car into this water or I can turn my car around and go work on the past that I've had and get a better future. And I knew that that would be difficult, but something just told me you've got to turn around. And so I turned the car around and I got home and I confessed to my husband that, listen, I have reached the point where I think I'm suicidal. I don't want to keep doing this. I, I, I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so scared. And I told him I'm going to be getting help. And so I called a counseling center that was local to me and immediately did the application for intake and began therapy. And that, that was a eye opening experience for me to say the least. Is that, is that where <laughs> EMDR comes into play into place. What is EMDR? Yes. Can you help us understand what that is? Because actually, I don't know what so, it is. It's see, I hate acronyms because I can never remember <laughs> what an acronym stands for, but I can explain what it is. Yeah, I, but I EMDR really... <laughs> is basically eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. That's yeah, I what think it I stands like EMDR better. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. why I can't remember what it stands for. But what it does is it uses bilateral stimulation. So you're using both sides of your brain. And it's taking the memory that you have tried to suppress, bringing it into the present, sitting there and bilaterally stimulating to where it's desensitized. So it's not distressing you anymore. 
That makes sense. It's not, it, it doesn't affect you. It's like if you were to go and you were really angry at something and then you saw something that just calmed you down, it just calms that memory down. And then once that memory is calmed down, then you can reprocess it and make it into something positive. So if I sat in there and I told my EMDR therapist that I'm really struggling with, I'm not worthy right now. Like that is the pain point that I'm dealing with this week. It keeps popping up. I don't know why. Then we would sit there and talk about the earliest memory that I can bring up of I'm not worthy. We'd process it. And then once it's processed and I'm not triggered by it, we reprocess it into, I am worthy. And so it's literally rewiring your neuro pathways. And something that she told me and I didn't know is it's one of the only therapies for CPTSD, but not many individuals can tolerate it. Let me ask you this, because I understand what PTSD is. I, I have dealt with PTSD myself from my job. Um, and I know other people from the military that have, and from the fire department and from EMT. Uh, what is CPTSD? So PTSD is usually surrounding one traumatic experience. Or separate. CPTSD is complex post-traumatic stress disorder, meaning it's not one event, it's multiple over a span of time. I see. That makes sense. I understand and, what, what's the difference between yeah. hypnosis and the uh, EMDR? I honestly haven't looked that up, but she's not putting me in a state where I'm not aware. She brings me to a state where I am fully aware and present. So it's almost like the opposite of being hypnotized because... You're not in a dream state. You are fully awake and engaged. That makes sense. I mean, it, it's, yeah, I, I was an investigative hypnos hypnotist for a long time. My oldest daughter was a clinical hypnotherapist. So I'm sure she would yeah. I'd probably understand what EMDR is as well. I should have asked her before I come on. <laughs> but <laughs> um, yeah, she. Uh, she did that for a little while, and um, she enjoyed what she was doing, and it helped people immensely with several, you know, aspects. Especially, she dealt, she's an actor at the moment, so she dealt a lot of people within the entertainment industry, where they she helped them get rid of their um, stage fright in there. Because even though they're actors, everybody still kind of gets a little bit of stage fright all you know at different times in their career. So she helped a lot with that oh, kind yeah. of stuff. But uh, yeah, that's interesting. That, how that kind of works. It allows you to reevaluate the situations and kind of look at them from a different perspective, the way I'm understanding it. You look at it from a different perspective so that you understand that it it's not what you really felt or mm -hmm. or should it continue to experience then because you were able to evaluate right. why you felt that way, right? Right. Yeah, I like that. And like it that. it really opened my eyes too. Because going through it as a teenager, you could be really bitter after going through something like that. And EMDR made me see it from not only my side, but her side. Right. And then I started having more compassion and understanding towards my mother. And I realized a lot of what she did, she did because she wasn't taught any different. Right. And so it, it opened up a whole new gate of seeing my mother in this different light. Now, do you, and I know that you will talk about this here in a few minutes, but you went on to become an HSBCP, which is a human services board certified. So do, do you practice EMD, EMDT within that? No, I don't do EMDR. Um, EMDR, to be, I'm sorry. Yeah. To do EMDR, you have to be a licensed therapist, and I'm not that. Um, I've contemplated going back to school to do it, but I have so much on my plate. I just don't think that now is the right time. 
what I do as an HSBCP is I meet with an individual where they are, and then I help them find what motivates them to actually change in a positive way and move forward. So it's, I'm sorry. Hmm? In that in that particular situation, you help you help men and women, or just women. I focus more on women, just because I love that I come from a position where I can empower them. I know what they feel. I've been there, and I know I can help them. I'm sure I could with men as well. I'm just not as comfortable with that situation. I guess I could say. Well, I said, yeah, I understand. Look, as I told you earlier, I'm very impressed with where you've come from in your in this journey. This has been a journey with many obstacles and bumps in the road, and you've built a, a uh, you and reinvented your life in, in a very positive way that allows you to help empower women who are in this situation or are currently yeah. going through this situation to be able to deal with it in a positive way and maybe re- get themselves out of that situation. So, um, you know, that's a wonderful thing. I think that you you create a positive environment for moving forward, which is really a good thing. Yeah, and, and that's what I want to do. <laughs> well, and, you know, I, it, it helps uh, having the experiences that you've had because, again, that gives you empathy and it gives you compassion, not just understanding you know, everybody can understand a situation. Everybody can look at it and say, well, I understand that. But mm-hmm. it's difficult or it's better when you can come in and say, well, not only do I understand, I empathize with you because I've been there. I know what you felt like. I know what you went through. I know how you felt. I know what you were doing and what you were feeling because I felt that same way. I was in that same situation. You know, just when I talk to other people who grew up with an alcoholic parent that you know, I had to make phone calls. My parents are sick today. They can't come in and lie for my parents because they couldn't get up and make the phone call to call themselves in for work. And it was, it fell on me kind of to do it. So, and I was angry about that for a really long time. Um, I was able to kind of deal with that and let it go. And then like you, you know, I made a a revelation, but it took me this is kind of going to give away my age. <laughs> it took me about 55 years to really understand where my father and why he became an alcoholic, why he continued to rely on that as a relief from his life circumstance and everything. But it took me that long to figure that out and understand it. So it gave me a better, a better, I could empathize more with my father from his perspective, which gave me, uh, or uh, give the opportunity to forgive him, which, you know, I hadn't done previously. I was still angry. I I was angry because you didn't come to my, um, you didn't come to my graduation. I was angry because you didn't get to see who I married. I'm angry because you didn't get to see your grandchildren and all, you know, all this stuff. And then it just kind of, so yeah, what you, I think your approach to this is, is very, um, lethargic cathargic cathargic i guess for you too right it's i guess been it's definitely been a journey and i won't say that it was ever easy but it's been eye-opening to understand that there's a different way to see it that makes sense And, and you're you're still married now Mm-hmm. Right, you guys worked uh, worked your on yourselves, and you are still married. You have, yes. you homeschool. That's a whole new journey. Homeschooling seven kids, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. So yeah. we have six living. Um, he had a daughter with his ex, who she actually um killed. And so we have seven total but only six living. So it's been a challenge to learn how to homeschool with six of them, but it's been fun too at times. Yeah. Cause that's the, I mean, they're all at different ages. So obviously you have to teach at different levels and yeah, that's gotta be that in itself has to be an interesting journey. Oh yeah. It's taught me a lot of patience. I'll say that. Really? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> That's the old the old cliche. Patience is the virtue comes into play. Oh but, yeah. But you are you are living your dream now. You went on, uh, like we said earlier, you're a human services board certified practitioner. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. What is that? And and what do you provide to people when um, you what service you provide? I guess. As I stumble over my words, can you teach me some speech? <laughs> so with that, there are seven or 11 core parts of it. But basically, the rundown is we aren't social workers because, well, we are and we aren't. We don't focus on like the family <clears throat> unit as old. We typically sit there and just focus on the individual. And we start at the base level. Um, uh, I, you've probably come across like the hierarchy of, what is it? Heslow's hierarchy of needs where you have to meet the basic ones before you can keep stepping up. So we meet at the base where they need the most help, which is finding housing sometimes, securing food sometimes, um, just any simple things that they need. And then we work up from there. And that means that we help them find resources and tools to help them to keep going forward. But then I like to take it more on a personal level and meet with them one-on-one -on -one and then focus on where do you want to be in the future? If you could be in your dream life, what does that look like? And then from there, they start talking about what they envisioned for their life and what that looks like. And from there, we break it down. And by breaking it down, instead of it seeming impossible, they can now sit here and create a goal to meet. And to get to that goal, they can break it down further into these tiny little steps that they can do starting that day to move towards what they really want out of life. Now, do you work with, um, what kind of people do you work with? What kind of situations do you work with in, in this particular environment? Oh, let's see. In the past, I have worked with a company where I focused on working with moms and doing child abuse prevention. And then from there, I moved into doing more mental health services. And I did adult and youth with that. And now I'm kind of gearing towards, since I've started my own business, I really want to work with the women who they know that they want more out of life or they have dreams that they had to kind of put on the back burner and they want to rediscover that. And they want that happiness again. They just feel that unfulfillment. So do you work a lot with with domestic violence situations or divorced women or women who have left those negative environments to help them kind of rebuild themselves, empower themselves, and give them more self-esteem that they can accomplish something? Yeah, I have worked with quite a few women coming out of those situations. And it's really kind of helped me at times bring me back and to look at what you did overcome because to me, it's just my normal. Right. And by working with them, I get to realize sometimes just how lucky I really am when I never would have thought of it that way before. When you graduated high school, did you have a dream to be uh, something else? Did you want to be a psychologist or a, um, or anything along that line. What did you want to be when you grew up? I actually was going to fast track into child psychology. And then I ended up pregnant and my life just changed. And so I decided that I still wanted to get that college degree. And I did as a single mom. Um, I was divorced when I finally finished the course. and. That was my biggest dream is earning that college degree because I was told I wouldn't even graduate high school. And so then when I graduated from college, I got to call those people and say, look what I did. Not only did I graduate high school a year early, 
but I got through college too. And that really boosted my self-esteem to realize that I'm not who people say I am. I have a choice. Well, in reality, you also shows that you're a mentor in that regard, because if you can do it, they can do it, which is outstanding. It's a great opportunity to say, hey, somebody tells you, I don't think I can do it. You can say, yeah, I did it. Look where I came from. Look where I'm at right now. So that really, that's a good thing. That's really a good thing. What made you decide to open your own business? Well, I remember standing in a hallway at 18 in high school thinking, one day I will have my own business. And I guess that stems from my father being an entrepreneur himself. And I actually had someone reach out to me about how they were a life coach. And they had seen a post of mine and they wanted to talk to me. And so I connected with this person and they said, you realize that with everything you've been through, you'd be such a great life coach for others. Then I told her, but I, I do this. I don't know how this lines up. And I fought it. And then something changed. And I realized that what I am doing and what my story is and what my experiences are, I could use that as a life coach for others. And that yeah. was the turning point. That's amazing. That's, you know, I, I think we all strive to want to, I had to reinvent my life and I left the police department because I was a cop for so long. I really had to reinvent my life and say, what am I going to do now? I need a purpose in life. And, and uh, my daughter turned me on to podcasting and, now this is kind of my purpose. I share other people's journeys. I get to do like kind of fun things and it really kind of gave me a new purpose. I'm very happy that you found purpose in this, this, you know, HSBCP. It, I think that, uh, again, you bring your experience, you bring your, your, uh, your values and your morals with that in your empathy and your understanding and created a, a unique environment for people to be able to move forward in life. So well done. Let's talk about that a little Thank bit. You. How how does somebody tell me about your business here? And if the people who are watching this will be able to see it on screen. Those of you that are listening, she's gonna tell you a little bit about it. So I do, like I said, life coaching now, and I work on a lot of mindset with some of my clients. Some of it is business related, but it all intertwines with life. And so I've decided that. I am a life empowerment coach and that's what I focus on in any situation. And I have also decided that I am going to share my story by publishing a book, hopefully by the end of 2022 about all of this and more. And I currently am opening up just a few spots for one-on-one. -on -one. Um, I don't have much spots open, but I am opening a few spots for one-on-one -on -one coaching too. And what's the name of your business? It is Fostering New Hope LLC. And how do we, how do we find you? Um, I am on Facebook at facebook.com slash Fostering New Hope LLC. And I also have a link tree that connects to all of my social media. And that is link tree forward slash fostering new hope LLC. And I'll have all the information in the show notes for everybody. So you have an easy access to be able to follow that link and how to connect with you. And as all, it'll be in your bio as well um, on uh, the webpage uh, before you go podcast.com as well. So they'll have links to it from there. In addition to that, now you also have a three day free self-compassion and resilience challenge on your website, right? I do. And I am going to probably be running that again in February. I think that's going to be the perfect month to run that again. So, so I'm excited about that. And they can find that on the, um, the, your website as well, right? Yes. It's on my website as well. Fantastic. Cheney, 
Thank you very much for sharing your journey with me. I really appreciate it. I think that uh, what you, again, I've said it numerous times throughout this, I think what you have to bring to the world in regard to helping women move forward in life after their situation has held them down is a very positive thing. So this is one more thing before you go. Do you have any words of wisdom you'd like to share with us? Oh, the biggest thing would be choose to follow what makes you happy, no matter how much it may make someone upset with you. Outstanding words of wisdom. I really appreciate that. Thank you for joining me on this show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your journey. And uh, I look forward to another conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you all very much for joining us on this conversation. I really appreciate you all. Don't forget to go to the App Store or Google Play and download our free app, One More Thing Before You Go podcast, where you can hold and have a unique access to everything One More Thing Before You Go. It was developed and provided by Superpass, our sponsor. If you love us as much as we do, please support us and visit our store, BeforeYouGoPodcast.shop, where we have unique merchandise available to support One More Thing Before You Go. We can continue to bring you inspiring, motivational guests, as well as content. We really would appreciate your support. Tell someone about the podcast if you enjoyed it. We're going to have an exciting year coming up. Please subscribe and follow us on any of the platforms that you follow us here on YouTube or on Apple, Spotify, and any of the others. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go, have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.